This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Go-Go. Whether you are listening to us live on our radio sets or you are listening to the podcast, thanks for joining in to another hour of science. I'm Dr. Shane, and in the studio with me is Dr. Ewan. Good morning, sir. Good morning. How are you? Good. Good to have you in the studio. Good to be back. Dr. Jen. Happy New Year, Dr. Shane. Is this the first time we've been on together? It is only the second week. I wasn't here last week, so this would be it. It feels like a delight. Yeah, it's great to have you in. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> also, also my first time in the studio this year. Yeah, so I, I did. I did the arithmetic, and it, yep, first time. <laughs> Great to have you in here too, buddy. One out of two. I know. It's uh, I'm still passing. Yeah. Well, what did you say in the email overnight? You said that you would be on your second best behaviour. I said I would try, try to, to be, be on my second best behaviour. <laughs> I guess, uh, yeah, long-term listeners of the show will understand what that means. That leaves a lot of options open when you think about it. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not an idiot. I may be stupid, but I'm not an idiot. Yeah. We have no quality control. <laughs> Anyway, we're going to get into some news. Then we have a couple of great uh, discussions coming up later. One uh, which uh, we pre-recorded for you, which is uh, fantastic. Uh, it's from Scotland. And then we have a live guest waiting in the green room that will come in and talk about various uh, brain diseases. But, Ewan, let's start with you. Some news for the week? Well, speaking of brains, there's a nice segue here. <laughs> My story is, in fact, about brains. There you but- go brains of woodpeckers but taking a step back first of all we know that brain damage particularly in sports players is a really big issue and one that's becoming even more i guess of an issue as with the more and more people look into it so football players as an example um 99 um, of football players where they've identified mental issues during their life um have had some sort of brain damage this is i'm talking about nfl so you know gridiron mm. players who run along get smacked in the head Bang. constantly over and over again and 87% of those players had what we call chronic traumatic encephalopathy. So CTE is the common um, acronym for that, um, which is basically neurodegenerative disorder um, because of all this constant impact. Now, when you think about woodpeckers, um, they go <laughs> they go pretty hard. So anyone who's seen a woodpecker in action, jump on oh, yeah. YouTube. They are impressive animals. So they have worked out that when they're hitting those trees repeatedly, it's about 1,200 Gs. So right? 1,200 Gs is the impact, basically, yeah, which is about you know 10 times the impact they've worked out of a football tackle. So it's serious impact when they're hitting those trees repeatedly over and over again. And they've looked at this you know, in the past and they found no evidence of brain damage. And they thought, well, okay, this is pretty cool. Maybe it makes sense evolutionarily. If you're banging your head into a tree all day long, you'd have to have some way of coping with that. It seems, it seems extraordinary <laughs> to me, the, the 1,200 G number, though, because, I mean, human beings pass out with acceleration of about 12, 10 to 12 Gs, yeah. most people. Yeah. 1,200 Gs yeah. is several orders of magnitude yeah. higher. Yeah, yeah. No, they're impressive animals. And so oh. this new study, though, that was in PLOS One, they've had a second look at this and they thought, hang on, this is not right. So I should also say that, you know, football companies, sports companies actually modelled helmets, um, neck protectors, etc., around woodpeckers because of this, you know, the abilities they have. But hang on, hang on. What, what, what features does that mean they have? <laughs> <laughs> a really long beak. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's a helmet, right? you got a dirty right. big stick it out yeah. of your Helmet. Yeah, it's We're easy, going to, get to, the, easy to get to the finish line when you've got well, a big thing, you know, you know coming brain out. Brain injury is down, eye injury is up. Exactly. <laughs> So in the past, they've looked at brains and found no evidence of um, brain damage, but these new authors were think, thinking, well, maybe that's um, it's probably an artefact of the staining techniques they used many, many years ago, which might not have been the most accurate. So what they did was they got 10 woodpecker brains, different species, and compare those with three red-winged blackbirds, um, which don't obviously bang their heads into trees all day long. And they stained them with this antibody, um, which is for a protein called tau, um, which basically um, is often referred to as tangles. And in your brain, this protein is really, really important because it basically helps stabilise neurons um, and also helps um, cells and so forth retain their shape. But it can also be a problem. So when you're getting hit a lot, it can accumulate in the brain and it can cause all these problems that I've just talked Mm. about. And so what they did was they went looking for this in woodpeckers and in seven of the ten birds, they couldn't get this staining technique, new technique to work. But in three, they did. And in two of those three, they actually found this um, positive. So what it's suggesting is that this tau is actually also present in the woodpeckers. Now, they don't necessarily think the woodpeckers have brain damage, 
But what it does suggest is that this protein may actually be really, really important in potentially mediating that effective impact. And so that's where the, the next, of course, line of research is going to go. So it's really, really exciting that they're actually finding out. And I should also say that they found these deposits of this protein in the same place where you find it in humans, and that's the front of the brain. Interesting. So mm-hmm. it suggests that it's really, really important in head injury. Um, and so obviously a lot more work now is going to sort of be looking into how, how do woodpeckers yeah, do this thing that they do, but not suffer the damage that yeah, humans we know do from repeated head injuries. Do so. you, you wonder, though, whether if, even if they did suffer that damage, what would they do? Go and whack their head against a tree? <laughs> <laughs> it's not like they, you know, they stop driving their cars. Yeah. Um, you know, maybe they just whack a bit faster. Maybe, yeah. maybe. More work to be done, obviously, but, yeah, stuff. it's very interesting. Yeah. They're yes. great birds, great birds. Dr. Jen? Uh, well, I thought we needed to talk about Cheddar Man who's been oh, yeah. big in the news this week. And, I mean, how could you not want to talk about someone who's known as Cheddar Man? Yeah, and looks, looks, <laughs> looks a bit like Chris KP. He's yeah, right. that's right. Yeah, you do. Yeah. So, <clears throat> if Chris grows his hair a bit longer, maybe. Oh, yeah. 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 Yes. So, so Cheddar Man is Britain's <laughs> oldest complete human skeleton, and he's called Cheddar Man because he was found in a cave um, in the Cheddar Gorge, which is in Somerset, so we're kind of talking southwest of Bristol. And this skeleton was actually excavated back in 1903, and Cheddar Man has mm. been in the Natural History Museum ever since. And kind of previously, this area was famous because this particular cave called Goff's Cave, where Cheddar Man was found, was very famous because the humans who lived there 15,000 years ago it looks like they were pretty serious cannibals so there's all sorts of interesting stuff if you want to read a bit about some gruesome cannibalism look up Goff's cave 15,000 years ago but we know that Cheddar Man lived about 10,000 years ago so we've known that for quite a while that work was done a long time ago but what came out this week was some new research some ancient DNA work which looked at um, what Cheddar Man would have actually looked like now it's been assumed so 10,000 years ago is very recent Mm, in human times And it's always been assumed that we know humans entered Europe about 45,000 years ago. And it was always been assumed that they would have adapted very quickly to having pale skin because if you live in a climate that doesn't get much sunshine, you need to have pale skin to um, basically absorb more vitamin Mm, D from sunlight. So it was always assumed. So we've had this very clear vision for a very long time that... Britons have been pale-skinned, blonde hair, blue eyes, green eyes for a very long time. And, you know, we kind of have this perception that skin colour is a proxy for geographic origin. But the work that came out, the ancient DNA work that came out this week, showed that that is all wrong. So mm. Cheddar Man, who only lived 10,000 years ago near Bristol, he had, yes, blue eyes, and we now know that pale eyes entered Europe much earlier than other features of what we think of as being British, but he had black skin and black curly hair. Hmm. So completely turns on its tail this idea that, you know, Britons have been pale-skinned for such a long time because it turns out they haven't. So it's a sample set of one, though, isn't so it? I mean, like, is, yeah. maybe, maybe, sure. maybe he was a travel. you know, maybe he, he was a, a, a foreign traveller who just... Coming no, to the area? I think How they've they done the work to show that he was representative of the population at the time and they've traced his genes yeah, okay. right through right. to modern times. So there are people who actually mm. have very clear ancestry back to Cheddar Man That's and cool. the other people. Yeah, there's a guy, and it turns out, I read this whole story, there's a guy who had been the, local, <laughs> no, but he'd been the local history teacher in the oh, local wow. school no for 30 years and it turned out he had direct ties to Cheddar Man and oh, he was still cool. living within a couple of Ks. Did Cheddar Man have a massive estate? <laughs> well, we don't know. But, you know, he was a hunter-gatherer. <laughs> he was a hunter-gatherer. He died in his 20s. Yeah, you know, we know quite a lot about him. And he was quite modern in lots of ways. You know, they've reconstructed a lot about how these people were living. And I just love that everyone assumed he would have been yeah. pale-skinned. Yeah. And he wasn't at all. Yeah. I wonder what the reaction from, the, from the, the crew working on this was. You know, I wonder whether they went, oh, that's interesting. Mm-hmm. Or whether they went, no, that can't be right. We'll have to go back and check it again. Or get someone else to look at it. That, yeah. Because, it, you know, it, as you say, I wonder how deep that assumption ran through yep. the scientific hmm. communities working on it. It's, it's, kind of like the, it's kind of like the dinosaur colour thing, isn't it? Yeah, you know, like, for sure. There's yeah. been an assumption just embedded in the culture for so yeah. long, not just scientific culture, but our generalised yeah. culture, mm. and all of a sudden, whack, you know, it just gets a, 
something like this just throws it out. But mm. I just love the fact that what this effectively means is that not very long ago, Britain was full of Middle Eastern immigrants. Yeah. That's what <laughs> they were. Yeah, yeah. And it was okay. It did and all it right. Fine. You know? certainly puts it Worked pretty well. An interesting take on modern events. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> modern events. Yeah. <laughs> Except that he died in his 20s. <laughs> uh, of, of an apparently quite violent death. Oh, yeah, yeah. right. Yeah. Okay. Because usually it's like a tooth shape. infection or, you know, a lot of people die of what well, we would consider simple things. Well, he basically had a hole things. in his skull and they don't know if it was infection or violence, but yeah, he yeah. died young and not nice. terribly well. Wood- maybe it was a woodpecker. Yeah. <laughs> can't trust those woodpeckers. You can't. They can go all day long too. 1,200 Gs. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Chris KB. Uh, uh, look, I, I stumbled upon this story, which um, is interesting because of its initial question, which is, okay, so if people are probably familiar with Venus flytraps or at least aware of them. Um, these are plants, like, like many others, um, that, that actually feed on insects. Um, but then, of course, we know that most plants, many plants, also depend upon insects for pollination. That is to say <laughs> that species of plant depends upon insects for its ongoing, its ongoing survival as a species. So apparently no one really sort of knew how it is they managed to get this balance right. How do you keep enough insects alive to pollinate you and maintain the, the, the species, but you can still eat them? Um, so, uh, so, yeah, a team led by Clyde Sorensen at, um, at North Carolina State University decided to try and answer this question, um, and I'm glad they did because, uh, you know, until I read this, I didn't realise it was even a question. But it is a good question. What they did is they basically hung around at flowering time and... Pretty much, you know, if you landed on a Venus flytrap, they grabbed you and they wanted to know, you know, firstly what you were, but also are you carrying any pollen specifically from a Venus flytrap plant because that's the most important thing. Um, and what they found is there really only there were very few insects that were commonly landing around the plants and carrying Venus flytrap pollen. These were, and I don't know, I can only assume that, you know, in this part of the world, uh, they're really well-named creatures. There were three in particular. The green sweat bee. <laughs> okay. Yep. The, <laughs> the checkered beetle uh, and the not-chipped flower longhorn beetle. Awesome names. <laughs> They're good, aren't they? <laughs> They're really good common names. Anyway, um, so it turns out that that these these creatures um, basically can get to the Venus flytrap flowers, which are above the snappy snap bit, really easily because they can fly. Mm-hmm. And only twenty percent of the actual prey that was being gobbled up by the by the Venus flytraps could actually fly. Mm-hmm. Most of them were crawling insects. Okay. So essentially, it's there's there's these three or thereabouts species that seem really good at it, but generally speaking, the guys they're eating, the bulk of what they're eating are stuff that actually can't get to their flowers anyway. So they've, it looks mm. like the plant has evolved a really simple technique, which is just distance-based flowers for, for fun <laughs> at a height and chompy-chompy bits for food um, at a slightly lower height. Very nice. That's I like very that. cool. Elegant. Well, uh, just quickly, I, I wanted to mention a couple of things. One, you know, I, if we have time later in the show, we'll talk about uh, the... The SpaceX uh, launch this week because uh, Ewan's pretty excited about that. But meanwhile, while, while the news was on Elon Musk um, putting his car somewhere, well, actually, I'm not sh- sure they know exactly where it is on the long term parking. Um, long term parking. <laughs> Very long term. But so he get a ticket. Yeah, so he does. He can Me- afford it. Meanwhile, a bit further out, um, in excess now of 40 astronomical units away. So this is 40 times the distance between the Earth and the Sun is the New Horizons craft that uh, just a few years, um, believe it or not, back in 2015, God time flies, um, gave us those amazing pictures of um, planetoid, dare I say it, Pluto. <laughs> Um, I'll just pull that knife uh, out of my heart. Uh, yeah, let's face it, folks. It's a planet. Um, anyway, sent back these amazing pictures, but of course, it's it's heading further now into the the Kuiper Belt, Kuiper Belt, depending on where you're from, and it will be examining some. They're looking at looking at over over two dozen um, Kuiper Belt objects during its stay in that period. And this thing is moving fast, like it is really flying. In fact, even when it left Earth, it was the fastest object we've ever sent into space. Mm. But um, it's currently in hibernation mode and they'll be bringing it out of hibernation mode on June the um, about the fifth, I think it's coming out. So that will be um, that will be very June fourth. That will be interesting because um, that's when they do all the testing, make sure everything's working. But it sent back a picture this week, which it just went under the radar. No one really saw this in the news, but it was actually the furthest photo ever taken by any object. 
from the planet Earth, full stop. So it now exceeds that of Voyager, et cetera, et cetera. And the sad part is, of course, the only records that will be breaking now are its own (laughs) because Mm. nothing else is out that far. Um, And, yeah, amazing, still working. What's the photo of? What do you see? It's it's a photo of its next set of targets. So you you don't see a lot. You see, you know, it's basically a bright spot in the the darkened sky. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's, you know, aligning itself for its next set of targets. It, it's done a lot of firsts, so it's even even recently done a course correction, which is the furthest anyone's ever done a course correction on a craft. You know, this thing's a long way away. So, mm-hmm. forty astronomical units. What is what does uh, hibernation mode entail? Like, it's still taking photos. So, what do, what do they yeah. shut down? So, basically, they shut down everything that doesn't need to be utilised. So, a lot of the computer systems, uh, a lot of the other experimental equipment that um, is not using. There are some things that are constantly doing, like particle counts and so forth. They're constantly on, but other things are not. So, so is there is there data that 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 we haven't heard yet that's sitting there being stored? I think that's true, actually. Although at the moment it's not collecting a whole lot, but right. there will be some that's not continually sent down. I just so, think there's, there's a, yeah. a bundle of surprise waiting to happen. You, know, you wake oh, it up and yeah, it goes, yeah, you yeah, have yeah. no idea what happened while I was gone. <laughs> the people we met. <laughs> OMG. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it's pretty cool stuff. And so it's just, yeah, it's a great example of just, you know, long-range control of these, these yeah. instruments are extraordinary. I think New Horizons has probably been one of the most successful ever full stop because if you think of what it did i always say to people imagine yourself in your car traveling at 10 times the normal speed you go on the freeway and as you go past a stop sign you lean out the window and take a photo <laughs> that's kind of what new horizons did as it went past pluto and please don't try that at home folks. Yeah, that's that's where it's at so amazing stuff we're going to take a break for some station announcements folks and when we'll be back uh, we'll be playing your uh, recorded interview for you uh, after that now it is a skype call so there are some slight quality issues but it's uh, very easy to, to listen to so um enjoy that you are listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 Triple R FM in Melbourne, Australia. With us now is Mel Cosentino. She's a conservational biologist and has a special interest in the impact between human activities and marine mammals. She's currently studying at the University of Strathclyde in Glasgow. Mel, welcome to Einstein and Gogo. Oh, hello, Dr. Shane. Thank you for having me. Look, it's great to talk to you. I, w- I want to start off first by looking at your background before your PhD because I think that's um, particularly interesting because you've actually been working in this field for a long time before you did your PhD. So give us a, a bit of a quick run-through of, of where you started and, and what got you interested in, in marine, marine sort of animals in particular. Okay, so I started... I wanted to be an accountant when I was really young and I went to special school for that. And in my last year... High school, I went on holidays to Patagonia, where we have a lot of whales there, uh, many different species. And so I went to a talk about killer whales, and after two hours of that talk, I decided I didn't want to be an accountant anymore. I just wanted to be a biologist. And so I started volunteering, but the city I'm from is like 2,000 kilometers away from where the university was. So it took me a couple of years to... Uh, get some savings and then I moved to Patagonia and then we had a big economic crisis in Argentina that was 2001 and so I decided to come to Europe I was married at the time and we came to Europe and then after another four years I was able to move to Spain and start uh, studying biology over there and in the meantime I was involved in very different things in, in many different countries with many different people uh, so, yes. mm. so it's a long way uh, from accounting to um, the marine world. That's, yeah. uh, but, but I, I suppose mathematics is the, the link there. You, you must have been reasonably good at mathematics to want to be an accountant. Yes, I was. I, I, just, I was five, so I'm not sure I was good in mathematics when I was five. But I was certainly interested in numbers, so... Mm. In in terms of volunteering, because I know you did some of your early research in this way, what sort of work can you do as a volunteer in terms of research? In, in particular, I think you were looking at whales. What sort of work were you doing there? So I did different kind of volunteers. So I I started with an NGO that was in Patagonia when I was in my city. So they were working on educational campaigns against captivity. And so I worked helping with that, giving talks in my city and talking in, on the radio and doing surveys to see what people thought about the topic. 
And to do research, I, for example, was in when I came to Europe, I was in in a local NGO in the Azores island, Portugal, and I worked there for three months as a volunteer, collecting data from land and then helping analysing and publishing. Also, I volunteered for a whale watching company that later hired me to work as a guide which is going out on the boat, collecting data and then helping analyse them. So it's very common in the field to do volunteering like that because you don't have the resources to have your own boat, so you just go out with other people. Mm. It, must be, it must be fun to some degree, though, going on those, those, sort of, um, those tour-guided sessions with people, I mean, because you get to share some of your, your love of these particular creatures with people who probably, in many cases, never seen them before in the wild. Yeah, so I worked in Spain in a company in the Strait of Gibraltar and most people didn't even know what they were going to see. They just is a summer season area and so people just walk on the beach and they see the company and they start to go out. So it's a great opportunity to talk to them and there's many different species and so um, while we collect data we can talk to the people and mostly they enjoy very much. So. And then I, I worked in Norway as well. But in Norway, I was doing a different kind of work. I was working from land, from a big lighthouse they have there with massive binoculars. And so I would go out there before the whale watching company, the foot, the boat would go out so I could find the animals for them and then tell the boat where to go. And so I had the chance to go out on the boat a couple of times, but mostly my work was out there just finding the animals for them and also collecting it. Sounds like you're more like an astronomer there, just searching the seas for... <laughs> yeah. The, the, the whales themselves, how interactive are they? You know, we, we see a lot of stuff on TV and, you know, some of the National Geographic videos and so forth, and, you know, you can never tell how much time is behind some of those videos, whether it's, you know, months or days or hours. How, how interactive are the whales with some of these boats? Do they, do they get their favourite boats, for example, that they, they hang around? So you very much depend on the species and where you are. So in the Strait of Gibraltar, they're very used to boats. And because I think about 90,000 vessels cross the strait a year, so they're just used to them. And so when you go with a the boat, they just get close to you. The different species, like the pilot whales, the calf would come. Uh, there's a couple of boats, they have a glass um, bottom. And so the calf would come and look at you, they're looking at them. And the small dolphins usually boat ride, just jumping in front of the boat. Um, but then you have other species, like the sperm whale, they don't approach you at all. It's just a resting in the surface. And then in Norway, for example, we've, we've got killer whales and humpback whales and fin whales in the winter time, And they are feeding all of them together, hundreds of them together. And so you're there, they're not really paying attention to you, just feeding once in a while, they might just pop up and look at you, go very close. But if you see them in the summertime, if you see the killer whales, they will not pay attention to you at all because they're doing a completely different behavior. They're in very small groups and they don't they don't look at you, they just do their thing. Mm. So it varies a lot. And how important is the particular boat to to that interaction? I, I can imagine that there would be some boats, you know, the sort of the small teeny speed boats where the, the, the high speed wine and so forth of the motors surely would just annoy the living crap out of these animals, whereas uh, perhaps some other boats don't. Is, is that an important factor in, in interacting with them? Yeah, so I, for my master's thesis, I studied the impact of whale watching boats on sperm whales in Norway. Sperm whales in Norway are only males and they travel alone. Uh, the females stay in, in warmer waters in the Caribbean, so the males have to come to the Caribbean to mate with them. Um, and they're not social over there, um, it's just themselves. And I found that I was, I was collecting data from uh, a whale watching vessel that is is very quiet and it's very slow as well. And I found that when the animals were with that boat only, they wouldn't react. 
they were very little compared to when other boats were around, including uh, something similar to a ferry. It's like a big catamaran that is very noisy and very fast. And the other kind of boats are uh, zodiacs, which are also really fast. So you can still do a good whale-watching trip where you're not disturbing the animals with these small noisy boats boats if you behave so there are many countries Norway doesn't have them there are many countries they have guidelines that you need to follow so how to approach the animal depends on the species how fast you can go how far away you should be how long you can stay with the animals and it, it really really works when you follow those guidelines Mm. Now, you've moved now to Glasgow in Scotland, so this is... Um, yes. You seem to be getting further and further away from your, your homeland as you move from one hemisphere. Uh, um, yeah, I'm, go- I'm going back down now. So you're going back down there, yeah. I went up there um, and I go, yeah. Yeah, yeah. The, the work now, though, is um, on how, how we sort of study the, the acoustic interactions between some of these animals and, and what the best methodologies and so forth are. But you're working on a porpoises and dolphins now as opposed to to whales yeah yes well i changed a little bit so i study my project the main thing that i'm doing with in my phd is studying is improving the methodology that we have to detect the vocalizations of harbor porpoises and other species that have their vocalizations in very narrow frequencies so the porpoises have the frequencies between 100 and 150 kilohertz. We cannot hear sounds over 20 mm. kilohertz. So we couldn't even hear them. We need to we need to work out an algorithm in order to detect those sounds. So really, really high frequencies. And there are several species, uh, three groups of uh, cetaceans. They have their frequencies in their their vocalizations, and they they don't produce any other sounds. It's just those clicks. Sounds like a click. And they're producing in trains. So when they're traveling, they click about 10 times per second. And when they're doing other behaviors, they change how fast they're clicking every time. So if you see the pattern, you will know whether the animal is traveling or if it's upset or if it's feeding or if it's interacting with another animal. And But now the algorithms that we have, they're not good enough to detect those patterns. So I'm trying to improve those. And while we had the data, we started analyzing the data, we realized that uh, there was a a porpoise interacting with with a solitary dolphin that lives in the area. And so the porpoise is making all these sounds in high frequencies. But the dolphin is supposed to be making different sounds in a lot lower frequencies, around 40 kilohertz to 70 kilohertz or so. But when we started analyzing the data, we realized there were sounds that looked like the porpoise because they were in high frequency, but had nothing to do with the porpoise clicks. And But they were similar enough to the dolphin clicks as well. Mm. And so... Uh, we believe that the dolphin, because he's alone and he's he's visited by this porpoise or different porpoises, uh, he's trying to imitate the porpoise in order to communicate with it. Mm. I mean, that's fascinating. So, um, so, so let's let's just unpack some of that because you've given me a lot there. The the, the first thing I okay. wanted to ask is. What is the purpose? Do we, do we know the purpose of the clicks? Is it a methodology for navigation or communication or both? Do we have an idea of that at this point? Yeah, so in other species, the species, cetacean species that can, only the ones that have tooth, teeth, uh, the odontocetes, they can produce different sounds and they equilocate as well. They make these clicks. So the clicks are for... Uh, foraging and possibly navigation and then the other sounds are for communication that includes whistles, barks, buses and different things but these other three groups they only produce clicks and so including the sperm whale as well and so recent studies have shown that animals change how frequent how frequently they do those clicks so they are using the clicks for communication because they don't produce any other 
Mm. It depends on the species. Mm. And porpoises and dolphins, how, how are they different? Oh, they're different families. So the the big difference, the porpoises are only six species alive today. They're smaller than dolphins. They've Their skull is symmetric. The dolphin skull is asymmetric. Okay. They both have um, one blow only in their head. But uh, and we don't know why the skull of the porpoise is symmetric, and the other difference is the shape of the teeth. For the porpoises, it's more like a spoon, and for the dolphins, not like ours, but similar to ours, and then just pointy. Uh, and so you've got this dolphin that's obviously, uh, for some reason or other, decided it will interact with this porpoise. I mean, forgetting the communication for a moment. Is this something that, that people have seen elsewhere? Is it normal for dolphins and porpoises to interact? I mean, they're not that different. as, Or is this sort of like, you know, lions and tigers kind of thing? You know, I mean, how, how far apart are they in terms of the way they'd normally socially in- engage? So usually both species, not so much the porpoises, they are in groups, but very small groups, maybe two, three animals, maybe five together. Dolphins live in groups of hundreds, sometimes mm. thousands of animals. So it's not normal that a dolphin is alone. That's, that's not common. He's, um, I, I say he, but we're not sure. We're calling him. Uh, he's a um, short-beaked common dolphin. And there's only been three cases of solitary common dolphins, and they were all in New Zealand. But we haven't seen any other. I think there's one case of a dolphin in the Mediterranean but he eventually uh, joined another group, so he was just alone for some time. And it's not common either that these animals interact with other species. So it's common for cetacean species to be together for a special reason, like feeding, like what happens in Norway, sometimes traveling together, sometimes socializing. But in this case, we've got one dolphin and another porpoise. The porpoise is not always there. And we've got records of the same animal in 2011-2015. So it's four years apart and it's still the same animal. So we don't know if the porpoise just goes away with her group or his group and then eventually comes back to say hello. Or if if it is around and we don't see them all the time together. So that part is not clear yet. It is not normal at all is changing their acoustic behavior when these species interact. So they continue to do their same sounds. In captivity, it has been recorded many times when you put two species together that they change their vocalizations to match the other species, but not in the wild. Mm. So this would be like a first case. Yeah, and it seems like the the dolphin's doing all of the change to its vocalizations. Is the porpoise doing any, or is it all on the part of the dolphin? So... Studies, recent studies have shown that the porpoises are not able to produce sounds below 100 kilohertz. Mm. And so if it is doing something, we haven't detected it. Mm. Now, now you mentioned uh, a big part of your work is looking at that methodology around the detection of the sounds. I mean, what's involved in that at the moment? Is this literally sticking some speakers in the water somewhere and hoping for the best? I mean, how do you, how do you go about recording these sounds when these these animals are in the open ocean so there are different uh different devices we is an hydrophone which is a microphone to put underwater and you can there are different types so there's something that you can moor in the seabed and just leave it there for a couple of months and that would every time there's a sound it would just record it it will activate itself the orders that record for two months in a row you don't touch it, it's over there. And well, the one I'm using is just is two, four hydrophones. There are towed in a cable that is 100 meters long. It could be 200 meters, 400 meters behind a vessel. So you just go around the study area in a systematic way, opportunistic way, just towing the hydrophone behind and it's recording all the time. And in 2006, although I studied before, the oil industry built a software to different algorithms to detect different species because they all make sounds in different frequencies and different ways. And it's, it's an open source. It's called PAMGARD, 
researchers continue to improve it and create algorithms for other species and to improve how it works because uh, it works in real time as well. For the purposes, you can say, okay, I want to click detector that if I have to certain frequencies, uh, let me know there is a, a porpoise here. So you hear an alarm because you can't actually hear the porpoise. So it shows you in the screen that you have red dots and that's probably a porpoise just um, vocalizing. And so once you've got all of your data, you can start analyzing those sounds. How do we know that the porpoises and, and the other species for that matter are not putting out sounds at other frequencies, you know, well well beyond our, our hearing range as well as, as what you've got currently for the porpoises? Oh yeah, so at the beginning we only had hydrophones that would detect sounds to lower frequencies, like mm. 48. And then people in captivity or in other situations realised that some sounds would start in lower frequencies, which is you just lose them. So we started using hydrophones with higher sensitivity. And so the hydrophone I'm using has sensitivity up to 150 kilohertz. Okay. And that seems to detect that uh, from 2 kilohertz to 150. So it's, we've got a, mm. a wide range of sounds. Mm. And it seems but that it's entirely possible that other species yeah. just go beyond that. And it seems now you've got the sophistication that you can hear a certain type of set of sounds and from that say, okay, this is the activity we we should expect to see given those sounds. Is that right? Yes, yes. So what's the what's the end goal of your thesis? You're, you're partway through. Um, what, where are you hoping to get to? I'm hoping that this methodology can be incorporated into this software in the future and that will give us an idea of what the animals are doing in the wild because we don't know that. We know they're there because we can detect it. That's good enough. We have detectors that can tell, okay, the porpoises are here. My methodology that I hope works would help us also identify how many animals are there at the same time because these animals produce click trains. And so I can see two I've got information about the direction to the animals as well as I'm moving. And so it will give me an idea if I've got, if I see two lines of click trains that I can tell, okay, might be two animals. And then detecting these patterns, if it changes, I can tell this is an area the animals are feeding, or I can detect interactions between different animals if we detect something else. So that would be the idea. And a big part of the work is to compare the performance of this methodology with the ones we've got already so that would be probably my this year that, that's my work is going to focus on that mm, sounds good now mel before we we let you go i just wanted to um ask you briefly about the jara award committee that you're chairing this is something you mentioned mm -hmm. to me off air um that sounds like a, a very interesting program that that you and some colleagues have started back in your hometown um give, give us a little bit on on what this award is about and how, how it's how it's going to be handed out yeah so Haido was a conservationist uh from costa rica he he was 26 when he was murdered uh by poachers uh, he was trying to protect sea turtles eggs of from poachers and one night in 2013 he was ambushed by these poachers and murdered. Uh, we heard the news um, in 2015 when there was a new trial and I was at the time part of the policy committee of this marine section of the Society for Conservation Biologists and we had the idea to create some sort of recognition for people like him. We started looking, searching for news about other environmentalist conservationists that were murdered because of their work and we found that about a hundred conservationists are killed every year because of that. And so we decided to set up this award and now I'm, I'm, I'm the chair of the Hydro Award Committee. Um, the award is given to, to conservationists from any part of the world that are risking their lives, they're receiving threats because of the work they do and the aim of the award is to highlight these people, to make them not invisible anymore. Uh, the conservation community is mostly unaware of this, that this is happening because it's happening mostly in third world countries, developing countries and, and so we are 
now in the process of setting up a Facebook um, page and a Twitter account and a special website for for the award. And the award is just a cash award, it's only $1,000. So we're starting a fundraising campaign to have more funds for the awardees. Um, the awardees are announced in the International Marine Conservation Congress that happens every two years. Mel, um, thanks so much for chatting to us today. I uh, hope your work continues to, to go well. Uh, all of this uh, stuff around uh, marine ecology and that is just fascinating. And the the more we learn about these species, the better, especially with the, the climate shifting so ra- radically at the moment. Thanks so much for joining us on 3 to Thank you again for having me. You are listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR-FM in Melbourne, Australia. In the studio with us now is Dr. Erin McCallum. She is the NHNMRC Dementia Research Development Fellow in the Preclinical Parkinson's Disease Laboratory in the Oxidation Biology Unit at the Florey Institute of Neuroscience and Mental Health. I got that out pretty cleanly. Erin, how are you? I'm very good, thank you. Thank you for having me. Now, we were just chatting before we came in there. We always ask people if they've been on radio before, and you said yes, but it was when you were a child. (laughs) It was, What was that about? I, I honestly, I couldn't tell you why we managed to get to do this, but um, when I was really young, so probably about 10, uh, the small area where I went to school, um, they had their own radio station and they let us come in once a week and just play around and do whatever we wanted, really, and we were pretty much unsupervised. It was great. <laughs> like us. It doesn't sound similar to what we do. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we're unsupervised, um, more or less. But uh, now I've got, I mean, were you talking science back then or was it? Uh, definitely not. We would do things like read our own poetry and play the Spice Girls pretty much. <laughs> I hear the Spice Girls are getting back together. Yes. One can that... only hope. Yeah, totally. <laughs> Chris KP is very, very excited. Um, now, let's talk about your work, though, because you're, you're in the, in the Flora Institute, which deals with a lot of different mental um, capacity issues and diseases of the brain, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It goes on and on. Um, but you're on dementia with Lewy bodies. Now, this I have to admit, this is something I have never heard of before. So run us through what that is. Yeah, so not many people have heard of it, despite it actually being quite common. Mm. Um, a lot of people say that it's the second most common form of dementia, although others might say vascular dementia is more common. Um, but it's very, it sort of sits at the intersection between uh, Parkinson's disease and Alzheimer's disease. Okay. So it shares um, similarities with both of those diseases. It's actually really hard to predict or to um, estimate how many people have the disease because it is quite similar to those other diseases. So often it's misdiagnosed. Um, as far as I know, I'm the only person researching it at the Flory. Um, and I think a lot of that just comes from the complexity of the disease. A lot of people just kind of stay away from it. It, it seems extraordinary if it's one of the, you know, the second commas. Co- I mean, you put those two th- things yeah. together, that just doesn't work for me, right? No, I mean, absolutely. But it's it's well, it's really hard because, I mean, there's so many people living with dementia in Australia, about 400,000 people currently. Mm-hmm. Um, but estimates of dementia with Lewy bodies are so wide-ranging. So they range from 1% of all dementia cases to 25% of all wow. dementia cases. So it could be as few as, you know, 4,000 people or it could be 100,000 people. Wow. Um, yeah, so it's quite difficult. Yeah. So you, you said that it's sat in the sort of range between Parkinson's and Alzheimer's. Now, can you give us an idea of what features of each of those it has yep. by comparison to those two? Absolutely. So um, it has the same sort of motor symptoms that you get as Parkinson's mm-hmm. disease, so that, um, that tremor that is really characteristic. Uh, in terms of Alzheimer's disease, you see um, that same... Uh, impairment with something called executive function, which is basically the set of mental skills you need to be able to carry out normal everyday tasks like planning your day and, and managing your time and things like that. Uh, so that's a really core feature of Park- of um, Alzheimer's disease that you also see in dementia with Lewy bodies. It also has its own um, individual set of symptoms, uh, including visual hallucinations um, and something called um, fluctuating cognition. So that's where a person will uh, really have a very very wide-ranging level of, of attention and things like that. And that's not common in Alzheimer's disease. It, it sounds like when you talk about visual hallucinations and things, I mean, it sounds like it's grabbing pieces from so many conditions. Yeah, it's it, and that's what makes it difficult to diagnose, I think. Um, and because it also has a very, a very uh, wide-ranging uh, pathology that you see inside the brain as well, 
it can give rise to different symptoms that look more more like one disease or more like another disease. Mm. And so, yeah, it's, it's really difficult to diagnose in the clinic. Over the last uh, probably two decades, we've moved from talking about um, a, a range of um, de- deficit conditions into talking about autism spectrum disorder. And, you know, it's this whole range of things now that are all put in essentially the one bucket with various levels of severity. I mean, is this where you're heading with this? Because it, it sounds like, you know, this is not a distinct disease. And, and perhaps Parkinson's and Alzheimer's aren't distinct diseases either, but they're all part of the same sort of spectrum. Is that is that the thinking? I think that there's definitely a... a <coughs> a group of people that are now starting to think that. Um, so there's a very prominent researcher in, in dementia in Australia, in Sydney, who sort of pioneered that idea uh, for these diseases. It's kind of the line of thinking that I work on as well, that um, you kind of have Parkinson's disease at one end of the spectrum and Alzheimer's disease at the other. Not everything fits onto that spectrum, um, but I think that dementia with lower bodies definitely does. Mm. Now, let's talk about what you're doing specifically in this area. Tell us a bit about the research that you're looking into in this field. Uh, so specifically, I'm, I'm a biochemist by training. I'm not a mm-hmm. neuroscientist, and so I come at it from a, a you know, very small scale. I, I, I get into the nitty gritty of the cell, and so um, my specialty is to look at the role of metals. So metals that we absolutely require for normal brain function, so things like iron and copper and zinc, um, and that we have to get in our diet. Um, but then also having the wrong mix of those metals and uh, uh, having too much or too little can uh, cause disease as well. So mm. that's specifically what I look at is what role those play in dementia with Lewy bodies. I, I mean, metal in our bodies is kind of normal, isn't it? So how much... Well, let me ask a different question. With things like Alzheimer's, the the protracted period of development is, you know, something that, you know, in recent years we've become more aware of. Does this fit into that same sort of scenario of like 30, 40 years? Um, I think that we don't really know so we know that there are that we definitely see metal imbalances in the brain but a lot mm. of that comes from post-mortem studies so we don't know when they start when that starts we don't know with it's if it's starting you know 30 years before you see symptoms or if it's just a result of other things going wrong in the brain and, and the cells are sick basically mm. So does that mean that, um, that if you can uh, detect metal imbalances or metal levels that that can be a diagnostic? Um, I think there's, there's s- s- people are starting to think along those lines, particularly with iron. Iron really seems to be the only metal that we have any way of detecting in a, you know, a living person mm. in the brain. Mm. Um, so there is a, an MRI-based technique that uh, supposedly detects iron in the brain. Um, and some collaborators of mine at, uh, at the Flory have actually shown that um, they can use that to track the progression of Alzheimer's disease. Okay. So also, uh, iron accumulates in Alzheimer's disease, yep. and they've shown that as the disease progresses, you see an accumulation of that. Mm. They've also shown that that can predict how fast you're going to decline as well. Mm. It's, it's interesting whenever I hear this stuff about metals, uh, you know, and, and it's becoming, you know, 10 years ago, no one was sort of talking about this stuff so much, but now, you know, it's a lot about metals in some of these particular diseases. As, as a physics, physics guy, I, I hear metals and I think, well, that, that's good. You know, this is something... <laughs> Well, because, you know, we can, we can, there's many um, processes and ways of extracting and, and dealing with metals, which for me as a physics guy, when I think of the biology part, you know, the more cell-based stuff, that's hard, really hard. And I know you guys don't see it that way, but for me, it's the other way. I mean, what's the thinking in terms of treatment when we're talking about excess, particular excess metal levels? Yeah, well, I think that's an, um, an interesting point as well, because while we can very easily remove metals, mm. you don't want to just willy-nilly remove metals because it is still required for normal cellular processes and these imbalances happen very specifically in certain regions or in certain proteins or in certain parts of the cell and so it's really hard for us to come up with therapeutics that only target those imbalances rather than just removing say iron from the whole brain which you definitely don't want to do you don't want to do um but there are there are a lot of trials happening right now, well, not a lot, but a few, um, that are trying to target those metals. So there's one happening in Parkinson's disease that's trying to remove that excess iron from the part of the brain that's affected. Mm. Uh, there's one about to start here in Australia called the 3D trial, which is um, using that same drug but in Alzheimer's disease. Uh, so I think, yeah, it's, it's things are starting to move. You're right, it's a relatively new field, I think, Um You'd probably say 20, 25 years old now, people have been looking at metals, but it's starting to gain traction for sure. Fantastic. Now, you're going to France soon, and this is all about metals too, isn't it? Absolutely. Tell us a bit about that and how it's funded. 
Yeah, so I was really lucky. Um, I managed to get a Victoria Fellowship, which is a Victorian government initiative. Uh, they give out 12 every year uh, to life science and physical sciences. Um, and it's an opportunity for young scientists like myself to go overseas and do what they call a study mission. Um, so you can go for as long as you want, basically as long as you can make the money last, um, which is what I'm doing. I'm going for three months. Um, so is, is that so? Three months is in Paris. If you'd gone to like Patagonia, you could have stayed for like two years. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I'm actually I'm actually going to Bordeaux, but yes, the same, same thing. Yeah, yeah. yeah so I've I've got Stuff. my my budget aside for the wine and cheese. Obviously. <laughs> <laughs> that's clearly, that's clearly not the yeah, Victorian that's... government taxpayer budget. No, 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 there. no. That's just your you know, money. That's my money. That's the second two months. Yeah. <laughs> Um, Yeah, so uh, basically they want you to go overseas and gain skills that you can't, that we don't already have here in Victoria. And they want um, the young scientists to then bring those skills back to Victoria and implement them here. Mm. Uh, So that might be a training course or whatever. And and so I'm going over to Bordeaux to uh, work with a collaborator over there who um, is very, very skilled at using a particular technique to image metals in uh, tissue um, so mm. not in live tissue, unfortunately, uh, but yes, in, in tissue that's been taken out of um, out of people. That's cool. And w- what's the imaging technique that they use for metal imaging? In this um, case? The uh, the acronym is PIXI, uh, which stands for Particle Induced X-ray um, Emission, which as a physicist, I'm sure you'll Sounds enjoy. Sounds great. Yep. Very exciting. <laughs> yep. um, and so specifically, actually, you mentioned it earlier uh, when you're talking about woodpeckers and you mentioned tower. Mm. Um, there's a... That's one of the protein aggregates that you do see in dementia with Lewy bodies. You also see plaques like Alzheimer's disease, mm. and of course you see the Lewy bodies, which is a protein called alpha-synuclein uh, primarily. And so specifically I'm going to use that technique to see if we can measure metals in those protein aggregates. Look, Erin, it's really interesting work, and I, it, it stuns me that more people are not aware of this particular condition. And I have to say, you know, I, I had not heard of it until you sent through your information. And, well, there you go. And it's, you know, it's one, you know, it reminds me a bit of, you know, we've had many guests over the years on talking about ovarian cancer and some of these areas that just don't get the same sort of promotion that others do, and they don't get the same support as a result. So yep. hopefully... You know, you going over there and the Victoria Fellowship and and being on here and so forth will get people more aware of this condition and you'll get more support for it. So keep up the good work. Um, I think this is one of the most exciting fields with, you know, Alzheimer's and Parkinson's and all these areas and ALS and all the other things coming in together and seeing how they interact and so forth. Hopefully we'll be uh, helping a lot of people very soon. So great work. Thanks for coming in. Thank you very much. Dr. Erin McCallum is an NHMRC Dementia Research Development Fellow at the Flory Institute of Neuroscience and Mental Health. We are almost out of time, and I know Yuan's got to get out of here because he wants to go home and check where the SpaceX rocket is. <laughs> Pretty excited. Um, it's, uh... <laughs> He's lost for words. I know. That's a shame. <laughs> I'm on my best behaviour. He's on yes. his best behaviour. He, uh, he loves it. He, he, yeah, we've had a lot of contact during the week. He's just so excited. So, <laughs> Chris KP, great to have you in, Bell. My pleasure. I'm going to be strapping rockets to my car just so I can park anywhere. <laughs> is it a roadster, though? Is it a... <laughs> no. Is, is that important? Oh, man. And now you're going to put on an astronaut suit. If required. I've yeah. done worse for less. <laughs> and play Bowie in the stereo, of course. Yeah, Very happy with that. On repeat. Yeah. Less happy with that. Yeah. I have to say that from, a, from a, a purely scientific perspective, I'm interested in how long this thing will last because mm. the radiation level's out um, mm. where it's heading are not insignificant. And I suspect you, you see these headlines where they say it's going to be in orbit for, you know, up to a million years. And I'm thinking, nah, is it, what, think what, so. a, what, what a great test for the upholstery and the paintwork. Oh, yeah. It's probably already Thanks, done. Thanks, Baxter that's right you'll get in trouble but uh look thanks so much for listening in today folks um whether you're listening to live or listening to us on our podcast uh we do appreciate that we're going to have some uh, great guests coming up over the next couple of weeks it's actually jam-packed i've had so many uh people contact us to come on the show which is great so much good science going on here in melbourne and australia but until next week uh we will leave you with this somewhat uh, dreary looking sunday but it's uh yeah it's not too bad it's okay out there thanks so much for listening to einstein and gogo i'm dr shane remember science is everywhere and we will chat to you again next sunday This has been a podcast from Free Triple R, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.